Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Renee Garrett and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. Faye Murray is an associate clinical professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department at Northern Arizona University, NAU. She receives compensation for this podcast presentation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. No relevant non-financial relationships exist. For Jackie's financial disclosure, she is an employee of Health Pro Heritage and Emory Health. Statements in this presentation do not represent the views of these companies. She receives compensation for her appearance on this podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com. For non-financial, Jackie Rodriguez is the owner of the Instagram account at unlearnwithme.theslp. My financial disclosure is that I'm a paid employee of a private consulting firm in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and as the host of this podcast, I do receive compensation for this from speechtherapypd.com, and my non-financial disclosure is that I serve as the secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Questions tonight can be written in the chat box or the Q&A and will be answered at the end of the presentation. Now, without further ado, we welcome both Jackie and Faye, and I will read through their bios. Dr. Faye Murray is an associate clinical professor in the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department of Northern Arizona University, where she teaches graduate courses and supervises clinical practicums. She facilitates the clinic bilingual evaluation team, supervises bilingual treatment sessions, and provides training for parents and school districts at the state and national level. Prior to joining the NAU faculty, Dr. Murray worked as a bilingual speech-language pathologist for over 25 years in various settings, most notably in early intervention and in public schools near the Navajo Nation and in communities with high Latin representation. Her clinical and research interests emphasize culturally and linguistically appropriate practices, impact of cultural values on treatment, cultural reciprocity in the clinical setting, effective use of interpreters, and client family empowerment. Jackie Rodriguez, MSCCC SLP, graduated from Georgia State University with an MS in CSD. She is a sequential L1 English, L2 Spanish bilingual. She began her career working as a bilingual diagnostician for a large, culturally and linguistically diverse public school system. She also has pediatric private practice experience. Jackie then transitioned into medical speech pathology as a travel SLP. She is based in Atlanta, Georgia, where she has gained experience working in SNFs, ALFs, so skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, independent living, and outpatient geriatric community centers. In addition to working with Spanish speakers, Jackie has extensive experience evaluating both children and adults from other language backgrounds. Jackie is passionate about bilingual assessment across the lifespan, dementia care, functional therapy, and health literacy. Jackie's background as a third-generation Afro-Puerto Rican-American and African-American has also fueled her interest within the field. Jackie is passionate about educating others about race and ethnicity, 
mentoring SLPs of color and encouraging heritage speakers to use their language skills as SLPs. All right. So thank you both for joining us tonight and we will dive in. Thank you for having us. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm very excited about this. You know, just to kind of give a little background, I, I met uh, Faye several years ago at the Council for State Association President's Conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. So that was 2019, I think. It was before, you know, everything changed. And then I met Jackie a, a couple of years later and had the opportunity to present with Jackie via webinar and then also having her on the podcast. So welcome back to you, Jackie. But I, you know, I feel like you both know I, I took a lot of educational work in Spanish and still feel like I'm completely clueless. So I'm excited about this because when we had this initial conversation, it made me think about how if you both have episodes where or times where you feel like, like you're experiencing imposter syndrome or you're not feeling like you're I don't want to say up to par because that's not the verbiage I want to use, but feeling like you're maybe not in the right space or, or time for your language. I can only imagine how that is impactful for our patients when they're dealing with all of these multicultural, bilingual, multilingual in some cases, issues in their daily life. And then you throw on top of that a language disorder, whether it's, you know, again, I like to do across the lifespan sometimes because I think it really switches it up and it allows us to pair up what children, teens, early adulthood, and then all the way across the lifespan of geriatricians, what they must experience when they're being evaluated by a non-Spanish speaker. So one of the things that I thought was really important was to kind of identify what translanguaging is and how it's used by bicultural Spanish speakers. Okay. You want to take it, take it away, Jackie, or do you want me to take it? <laughs> Why don't you start <laughs> you know, translanguaging trans- is kind of like a newer word. And, you know, one of the things we're going to discuss this is just because we're bilingual doesn't mean that, or multilingual doesn't mean that we're up on all of the, you know, the nuances of the, the coin terms, et cetera. We just happen to speak multiple languages. And so translanguaging is one of those that I'm thinking, is that the code switching or is that, or is that something different? And, and translanguaging the way that I've sort of begun, have begun to understand it, it's all encompassing so that code switching it falls under translanguaging, but translanguaging Translanguaging is when someone who's multilingual is using their full linguistic repertoire and that use is honored and we use it in our in our practice. You know, I'm I'm a whole package, you know, I'm bilingual, but I'm not a great bilingual in some places and a better bilingual some pla- some other places. And that's all part of me. And that's how I express myself to whatever community I'm, you know, I'm with. So sometimes like with Jackie, quizás podemos hablar en español, you know, so we might be able to speak Spanish and just got like say things here and there because I feel more comfortable with that. But maybe in another setting, you know, way to have uh, monolingual speakers that I'm speaking to, you know, I might have a word that I want to say and I might just throw it in Spanish, but I typically wouldn't do that. I, But my culture and my background are all on display all the time. I just choose when to sometimes express myself linguistically in the other language or even dialects that I speak, right? So I see it as, and then it affects also how I do treatment, you know, when I'm, as a person who's translanguaging, I I adapt to the different dialects of my patients or expressing myself in Spanish and maybe giving them myself a little bit about my background, which might be different from that. So there's some of that reciprocity that goes back and forth. Oh, eres colombiano, you know, yo soy cubana, you know, you're Colombian, I'm Cuban. And we might find a place through our our languages to to communicate. So I'm not going to hide who I am. I'm as, as, as someone who practices translanguaging. This is me and my linguistic background does affect my interactions with others for for good always. <laughs> Exacto, And I think that a common misconception that monolingual people have about bilingual and multilingual people is there's a great image that I've seen circulating around the internet. And I've seen it in presentations where we talk about bilingualism. And it's an image of a person and it has like two other people to the side of them. And it says that bilingualism is not one whole Spanish speaker and one whole English speaker together in one person. It's a mix, like Faye demonstrated, that sometimes when you speak two languages, there's just certain thoughts or ideas that just sound better in Espanol. 
And then there's some (laughs) things that we just don't necessarily have a term for in Spanish. So we use the English word. And that's normal when you speak more than one language to kind of bounce back and forth between those two languages. And even another point too. So sometimes when you're a bilingual person that is has been raised here in the United States and educated here in the United States, and oftentimes our heritage speakers don't have a lot of formal education in their heritage language, that everything that they learn is from home in their community. Sometimes we'll go to assess a patient who is a monolingual speaker of our heritage language, and there can be a disconnect there sometimes too, where we don't always have all of the words or maybe concepts in our heritage language. So I think that that's another really important piece that's missing as well. When when we look at how we connect with our patients, that we have bilingual clinicians who often use translanguaging, but sometimes we're working with monolingual patients who may not have a lot of exposure to English and might not have this translanguaging skill in their repertoire. So being knowing how to adjust our language and also knowing when sometimes we might have to get the interpreter if you're like me and you're a heritage language speaker. There's no shame in getting a second opinion from whether it's an interpreter or even if you have another bilingual colleague who's more familiar with the dialect and the language that you speak, that can help to kind of fill in the gap between your translanguaging and that monolingual patient that maybe only speaks the heritage language. Yeah, that's so So, true. (laughs) Thank you for saying that so eloquently. Yeah, (laughs) both of those I'm blown away already, but one thing I want to make sure we do, because I'm not sure everyone will understand the differences between, is there a difference between someone who's bilingual and someone who is a heritage speaker? Because I don't think that most people will understand what those two things look like. Bilingualism is on a spectrum, right? So many people, you know, will go their entire lives and speak their language, and they might be exposed to another language sometime in their life. And, you know, Jackie said that she was a sequential English learner, right? So that means that she learned Spanish first, and then somewhere along the way. I'm sorry, the other way around? It's the opposite. I learned English first and then learned Spanish second. Completely backwards. We lead like like opposite lives. It's really interesting. I started in inpatient rehab and ended with pediatrics. And she started with pediatrics and ended in inpatient rehab. So we have like this opposite thing. So my native language is Spanish. And so I am a sequential Spanish English bilingual, meaning that I learned Spanish first. And then I learned English later on in life. I was exposed to English at age 10. And so I had a lot of education, you know, I learned how to read and write and do all of that stuff in another country in Spanish. That's my story, right? And so then I learned to speak English. And so my education from middle school on has been in English, okay? So all of us have our stories. And so there are different levels of bilingualism. So my Spanish, you know, that I had didn't stop at 10 because I went to church and I had social functions and I was surrounded by a great community of Central and South Americans and North Americans, Mexicans are North Americans, right? And so that really enriched and kept my Spanish going. However, there are children and even adults now who may have learned Spanish first. Let's just say that for that sake. And then they got to like four years old or five years old, and then English was introduced. And so their Spanish stayed, you know, they didn't never developed an academic Spanish, right? And so maybe they know how to converse home things about foods. Maybe they their Spanish hasn't been established or hasn't grown past that stage. And then there are people who maybe went to school, maybe they moved from a different country in second grade, and then there was language loss because the parents wanted to learn to speak English and they stopped speaking Spanish at home. And so there there are so many stories. Every single person who's listening here is bilingual, will have their own origin story, right? And so there are different levels. So the heritage language is the language that you were first exposed to. And it's the language of your of your your family, your home language. So my mm-hmm. heritage language is Cuban Spanish. And so that's my go-to. Now, do I speak hablo como una cubana? Sometimes when I'm around family, I can start with that accent. But when you hear me just talking normal Spanish, my Cuban dialect is not what I use. I try to use more of a middle-of-the-road dialect. And as far as talking about speechy type things, or you know, I've really had to educate myself because none of my education 
was in Spanish with regards to undergrad and graduate school. And so, you know, we talk about true bilinguals. They're equally fluent in Spanish and English. No, I, there are very few people that are equally, and those probably have certain type of jobs where they usually that language. We have some strengths in some areas and, and not so much in others, and it depends on the content. So I see this as a spectrum. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious, though, Jackie, to find out about how you learned Spanish and how that all came to be because I just assumed completely the opposite. Yeah. So I'm actually glad that you asked this question about what's a heritage speaker versus what is a bilingual speaker. So I agree with everything that Faye mentioned about how bilingualism is truly on a spectrum. So I'm a third generation Puerto Rican American. So my bisabuelos, my great grandparents came from Puerto Rico here to the United States. And so my my story is a little bit different. When my great grandparents came here in the early 1900s, they came shortly after Puerto Rico became part of the United States and when Puerto Ricans gained citizenship. And and even though Puerto Ricans are considered citizens of the United States, when they move from the island to the mainland United States, it still is a very similar immigrant experience to that of Latinos that come from other countries. And so at that point in time, there was no Spanish. My my family came to New York as most you know immigrants came, and there was no Spanish Harlem. There were not large quantities of Latinos in the parts of the United States that were not once Mexico. I'm gonna I'm not gonna talk about the Southwest because that it complicates my story. <laughs> so my point here is that there just were not a lot of Latinos in New York. It was not like it is today. At that point in time, you know, unfortunately, you really had to either learn English to survive or you ended up going back because you just you couldn't get a job. You couldn't work. You couldn't survive. And so I'm very familiar with my abuelo's story. My abuela died when I was very young. And the story that my abuelo always told was that when he came, his parents divorced shortly after coming to New York and he lived with his mother. And his mother said, en esta casa tu hablas en inglés. So in this house, you're going to speak English and you are going to go to school. You're going to learn English and you're going to come home and teach me so that I can speak English and so I can get a good job. And so she went and got a job as a secretary. My bisabuelo, my great grandfather, on the other hand, never learned English and he worked as a barber. And like I said, at that point in time, there was no Spanish Harlem. The Latino community was very small and he had a really hard time sustaining himself. And so he actually ended up moving back to Puerto Rico. And so my family that lives in Puerto Rico is my family from his second marriage. And so if you ask my grand, my abuelo, he always says, like, I learned Spanish in the streets because that was, you know, his family's survival mechanism, that there was a lot of prejudice and discrimination towards people who didn't speak English, just like there is today. But it was different because there wasn't the community aspect. Then my abuelo and my abuela spoke Spanish to my dad and his siblings, but they spoke English back. So all of my aunts and uncles are what we refer to as passive bilinguals or receptive bilinguals. So they all understand Spanish, but don't speak it. But my dad went to, in school, he learned Spanish. So he's now fluent in Spanish. And my dad was an auditor, worked in in Latin America and used his Spanish that way. And then now we come to me. So I was born in Georgia in a mostly white neighborhood, did not have a lot of access to Latinos. And I learned Spanish in school. Now, I like to use my own background history to kind of demonstrate the difference between heritage speakers and bilinguals. So I learned Spanish with mostly other like white American students, even though, you know, I was still learning Spanish. I was familiar with Spanish words. So I knew things like all the things we eat at Christmas, pernil, arrocongondules, like platanos, all that stuff. So I had words and was exposed to words. And then I listened to Spanish music, didn't know the words. Some of the reggaeton songs that I listened to I, as an adult, now that I could understand, I was like, I had no business listening to them to them as a child. <laughs> I, used to, I used to be on a website and I used to translate <laughs> Reggaeton music. That was for fun. And I'm telling you, I learned a lot of dirty words. But anyway. Yes. yes. 
And so because of my cultural connection, even though I'm not a native Spanish speaker, it is my heritage language because I have that connection to the culture. And then even I feel like I have a better understanding of like understanding my patient's culture, understanding how hard it is to maintain the heritage language and teach your child because I see with my family and how Spanish got lost over the generations. Whereas my peers and even our SLP colleagues who are non-native Spanish speakers and non-heritage Spanish speakers have a much larger gap in terms of their knowledge because they're missing that cultural piece that I was provided with when I was growing up. So I like it. I think that's I think that's perfect. And I I see where you're coming from with that because the language is more than just the words. It carries a culture. It carries a feeling. Um, it carries, I mean, just the music, just the atmosphere of being an, in your home and having that be part of it. And even though you might not have been speaking fluently, you're hearing about platanos fritos and frijoles negros and, you know, you, and, and that's just the foods, but you're, you know, about the the, the dances and just the smells and the sights. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's different. Um, and so I, yeah, I thank you I, for that perspective. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I'm, I'm not- only the opposite end of both of those because I learned all this <laughs> vocabulary and, and language and stuff. And um, I can get the gist of what I hear. I can get the gist, of, the gist of what I read. But to come up with a response, most of the time I'm like, I'm nothing. <laughs> you know, I, I read some research about, you know, what what motivates people to learn a second language, you know, because my my dad. Um, you know, he's been here since we arrived. I was a child, right? And so he's in his 80s and he never learned English fluently. Um, you know, and he's a very smart man. He's a he's a writer, you know, he um he loves the word in Spanish. He's an orator, he's a preacher, you know. So um, so language is really important to him, but he couldn't pick up the the um the English. And my mother did pick up the English. And we talk about how do, how why are people motivated? You know, and the research shows that when you have the social um, the socially, that's the biggest motivator. If you want to be able to talk to somebody, you know, you're, you know, a, a girlfriend or, you know, or your, um, you know, your neighbors, or even like for me, it was at school, they talk about the silent period, you know, that period of time where, when a second language learner is just kind of listening, my silent period is probably five minutes, you know, it's just a personality thing. I wanted to talk, you know, and I wanted to have friends. And so that was a really high motivator for me to learn English. Um, you know, and other people have other motivations, like a job, like I have to learn it because I have to be able to to um, uh, to help my family. Right. But, you know, it's difficult. People think this learning a second language is easy, but it, it's not. It's really hard. And we expect it to happen very quickly. And it's something that grows over time. So like the bilingual that I was maybe when I lived in, in East Los Angeles and that area, uh, I probably was maybe better <laughs> at Spanish than I am now. It's not like I'm losing it. I just don't have the amount of practice necessarily. And it takes me a little bit to get going. And so um, we need to just understand everybody's story and where they come from. And, you know, you you embrace that. You can't um, make anybody feel bad. Oh, you know, you, you, you look this way and yet you don't speak Spanish. And there's a lot of shaming sometimes that happens in our communities. Yeah. You know, our own communities. Mm-hmm. Que te pasa? You know, what's going on? You know, where, where's your Spanish? And you sound like a gringa or, you know, um, you know, and some of that that brings shame. And then on the other hand, you are a second language learner. So maybe like for me, um, you know, I've worked for a long time to get rid of my accent. I haven't completely gotten there, but I don't care anymore because now I embrace that, that that's part of who I am. But in our mm-hmm. field, we, you know, they wanted us to sound as mainstream as possible. And so I really worked on my accent to reduce it. And, and I'm sorry about that because I think I lost part of who I am because of that. Um, but there's, so there's pressure. Oh, you know, you're pronouncing this word in English wrong or, you know, and, and in Spanish, you're not pronouncing that right. Or you use the wrong tense. So we get it from all sides with this I'm not enough, you know. My bilingualism mm-hmm. is is, you know, I'm I'm either not good enough in Spanish and not good enough in English. And it's a really interesting place to be. I've survived that and I really don't care anymore. <laughs> it's like, this is who I am. This is, you know, just this is you know the result of you know how I was raised. And and that's okay, you know. Mm-hmm. There's I no mentioned that right oh, or wrong sorry. way to be bilingual. Sorry. There is no there is no right way to be bilingual. I love that. I love that. Well, and I, I mentioned that recently to someone about um, dialectal 
because I think that's an important piece and you kind of touched on that different dialects within the same language. But like for me, when I went to apply to graduate school for speech, um, there was a point in which they wanted me to go for accent modification because of my coastal borders line Southern accent. And they didn't understand. It's really a Eastern North Carolina because that's where my family's from. And, and I'm with you, Faye. I don't now I don't care. I mean, it is what it is, and it's not going anywhere. I'm I'm not 27 anymore, maybe 30. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. And I think, you know, when we're looking at the roles and responsibilities that we have, whether it's a dialectal speaker that we're, you know, we could even, and we don't have to because we won't have time, but African-American dialect, and then just the the roles that we have to look at for us, as like me, uh, again, not bilingual by any stretch, but thinking about what our patients' needs are. And I don't want to say requirements because I think that makes it sound negative, but their needs. What do they need in order for us to operate in different settings and meet them where they are as either monolingual or bilingual speakers? Because I think that's a really important topic, too. Yeah, I think um, to touch on both of your points, um, to touch on what Faye was mentioning about how when you're bilingual, there's so much discrimination and, and just like discomfort from within your own community and within the outside community as well. And I think that um, that really in, contributes to the imposter syndrome where a lot of because bilingualism is so not well understood by the majority. And then you look at our field with specifically with Latinos, with our field being majority white and not a lot of Latinos in the field. We don't have that representation representation to say, you know, look, this is normal for um, people who have learned uh, English second to have an accent and to make errors. Sometimes that's totally fine. And also for people who, um, you know, learned their heritage language exclusively, exclusively at home and um, never received, you know, a lot of formal education, there, there's going to be some gaps where it comes to being able to deliver highly technical information about our field in Spanish. And then on the other side too, one of the other issues that we deal with that is a result of all these things that I just mentioned also is that even in within the Spanish-speaking communities, there's you know, like you mentioned African-American English and there's discrimination towards certain dialects of Spanish. I know Caribbean Spanish um, just is very similar to um, your Caribbean English, how like people from Jamaica talk and um, it's highly the, um, you know, Spaniards who uh, colonized these islands came from the Canary Islands. And so the Castilian Spanish was different. And then it's also mm -hmm. highly influenced by West African languages from the slaves that were brought over. And so there's a lot of just negativity towards uh, Caribbean dialects as well. So even, you know, we, it's important that, you know, a Spanish speaking SLPs are, are thinking about our biases about different dialects in, in Spanish as well. And, and because we don't have enough representation with bilingual Spanish SLPs, we don't have enough of these conversations to talk about like, well, what's, where's, we know the bias that is directed towards us by people who are not Latino, but also within our own community, like here's our bias that we have as well. Or even, um, you know, another thing that I'll see sometimes too, is we know our field is most accessible to people who come from a higher socioeconomic background. And um, a lot of times our patients that we and students that we work with might be from immigrant backgrounds, might be from very low SCS backgrounds. And just checking your bias about like, what kind of assumptions do you make about people who come from a lower background? Um, so there's a lot of gray area in the bilingual side of our field when it comes to bias and, and um, and making sure that we're we're providing the best care for um, the people that we work with. I agree. I mean, I just I think you said it beautifully. I think that um, we bring something though, even when we're not speaking Spanish. I'm just thinking. Just very recently, we have a patient with a TBI, and um, you know, um, he's he's bilingual, right? Uh, but 
they've only assessed him in English. And, you know, he's got this prosody, you know, they're talking about prosody and how he has a lot of uh, breaks in his language. And I'm like, well, have you tested him in Spanish? Because it could be that, you know, he's a second language learner. And so it's that insight that even though we might not necessarily, um, you know, you know, ha have to do, um, have to use Spanish in our practice all the time, sometimes we understand, you know, the questions to ask or, you know, or the, uh, you know, just just that perspective to take. You know, going back, you know, Cuba and Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, we're, you know, we're neighbors, we have a lot of the same foods and very different, you know, uh, political <laughs> experiences, but definitely very mm -hmm. familiar. And uh, I see a lot of what you're talking about, but dialectal, if you watch the news in Spanish, you know, you're going to get uh, mostly white, um, you know, fair um, uh, broadcasters who speak this very middle of the road Spanish without any of these dialectical differences, very similar to the the newscasters in you know from New York that for ABC, NBC, CBS, you know they're not they're not speaking with a twang or with you know or they're not using vocabulary that that you know is dialectal right or that's specific specific to a region excuse me and so you can maybe see that you know somebody speaking with a southern accent. You know, there are all kinds of biases some, in some places with that. It's very mm -hmm. similar in, in the Spanish speaking world. You know, my dad, who's, you know, reads and 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 writes and such, you know, he would always have his Diccionario de Real Academia, which is like the, the dictionary from the, you know, Academy of whatever. This is the best. This is the book that tells you of that if the word parqueo really exists and parqueo does not exist. And the word is estacionamiento. You know, it's like, okay. I mean, because we've taken this English word and we've merged this with a Spanish word and we call it parqueo, you know, uh, there's no, the parking is, is is an example. And my dad would quickly look it up. Parqueo is not here, you know, and it's that closeness. And you you see the same thing. Um, prescriptivist in English, right? They're saying we don't mm -hmm. use this kind of word or we don't, you know, um, we don't use the sentence structure. It's, it's those people that don't see language as uh, fluid. You know, Man. that we don't speak in English the way that they spoke in the Shakespearean times. In Spanish, we don't speak <laughs> like, you know, La Reina Isabela. It's, you know, that <laughs> has moved along and dialects, um, you know, need to be embraced uh, for what they are, which is just an expression of, of your culture and of your background and, and be embraced. But we need to be able to, you know, to uh, to know that as as Spanish speakers and to to celebrate that and the uniqueness and the wonderfulness of the dialects and what they express. And I want to talk a little bit about interpreters really quick, just because you're bilingual doesn't make you an interpreter or a translator. And I think yes. that's really important to understand. You know, I worked Absolutely. as a professional interpreter and translator when I was younger. Um, and, and I'm telling you, that's his own thing. So if you grab somebody like, you know, who's just walking by and bring him in to to uh, uh, to translate or in, to interpret during a session, you don't know that they might not be literate in Spanish. They might be at a different level of, they might speak a different dialect. They might be at a different level of their bilingualism and may not be able to tell um, the client that, oh, we're going to be doing a modified barium swallow. I mean, that's a pretty hefty thing. You have to have, um, you know, some background knowledge about medical terminology and, and medical things before you're able to, to interpret that kind of thing. So, Please understand that just because you speak a language and you might not know what level and that that doesn't make you uh, a professional interpreter or an interpreter at all. You know, so that's just just something I kind of wanted to throw that in because I think you mentioned something about about interpreters. Not all of us are great at it. Right. And it depends on the right. context of what mm -hmm. I used to interpret for legal uh, for the courts. And that was a specific, very specific vocabulary. Um, and I was also a, a medical interpreter for a while, but you know I've lost some of that. And but if you put me in an IEP meeting, I probably can do really well at a school bet setting because I know that vocabulary. Take me out of that and have me, you know, interpret maybe even for a medical SLP now, where I just don't have you know the skills of the vocabulary anymore. You might be really disappointed and think she doesn't speak Spanish. I was like, I do. I do. Just that that kind, you know. And so, <laughs> uh, so yes, yeah, sometimes it's important, even if you have and oh. Another thing is that, like Rodriguez, right? You know, my maiden name is Gonzalez, and I use Gonzalez um, uh, Murray as well. But sometimes we see somebody with a last name or a first name that's like, you know, Spanish sounding, and we just like assume all kinds of you know, <laughs> proficiency in that language, you know, and and uh, we can't just make assumptions, you know, just like many people have German last names or, you know, whatever, and they don't speak German anymore because their family has been here a long time or they were never exposed to it. So I guess the lesson here is don't make assumptions. <laughs> 
about anything. Well, and I think it's a really good point because I know I worked with a CODA when I was in IPR who was second generation, I believe, but family was from Dominican Republic. And so she learned Spanish in the home, um, learned English kind of at the same time, but her formal education as like a kindergarten elementary school was Spanish. And then they came here full time because I think they split time between the two countries. And so anyway, she had mostly her formal education in English, but she went to be a translator for our health system. And she had to go through some training and classes and pass a test. And she couldn't pass the test because exactly what you said, she didn't have the specific type of vocabulary they were looking for as a medical translator, despite the fact that I've heard her speak Spanish. And I don't know. I mean, it sounded great to me, but I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the expert. I'm not the, the person who's going to to need that translation service. And I think the flip side of that was what if we, you know, what if somebody was maybe working? Cause I have friends who go down and do medical missions in Caribbean countries and in Central America and South America, and they maybe aren't fluent. Maybe they have a little bit of Spanish, but they're not fluent. But what if they had a medical emergency and they need someone to translate in English? So we had, you know, again, I think thinking about that both ways makes a lot of sense because we assume that the translator is the, the savior almost they're going to be the one yeah funny is you know when you're trained i don't know if this happened to you jackie maybe when you've used other interpreters but you know sometimes when you get like you know you bring the cart right you get you get the interpreter on you know on a on a screen and Mm -hmm. and sometimes depending on their state and how they interpret regulations i'm i'm a member of the and i should have said that i'm probably i'm a i'm a member of the american association of interpreters and translators in education I think I'm the only SLP member of that. It's pretty new. But so I get a lot of information from them. But let's say that you're doing an oral mech exam, right? You're doing a motor exam or something like that. And you're looking at the patient and you're saying, you know, uh, open your mouth. And the interpreter says, you know, abra tu boca, right? And so the, the patient who might have like some cognitive impairments will look at you and then they'll look at the screen. And then, you know, because they're supposed to say exactly what you say. So then you say, um, you know, move your tongue from side to side. He said, meet him at me, you know, meet him at me, he move, he move it, and move your tongue. Look at me, move your tongue side to side. So then the interpreter says, look at me in Spanish and move your tongue side to side. So then they're looking at the interpreter. It can get very confusing because some of them, you know, will interpret exactly what you're saying. First person, which is is gold standard for interpreters. But when you mm-hmm. have a person with maybe that has some challenges, right, because they've had, you know, an infarct or whatever, then you need to be able to adjust. And some interpreters can do that and some cannot. And so there are tricky things that go on when we use interpreters. And many of them are, they're not SLPs. So, you know, like we should never use things like, oh, he's, you know, with school base, he's fronting fricatives, you know, because it's like, oh, it's not, you know, whatever, fricativos and whatever they're going to say, they don't know what they're talking about. And sometimes they don't have the vocabulary. And so we have to really understand that when we're using an interpreter, that that person who may most likely is not somebody in our field probably needs the um, the wording to come out in a way that the patient's going to understand. It's your mother sitting in front of you, somebody who doesn't know anything about our field. So we have to be really conscious of that and always looking at the patient and treating them with respect. I tell students that you know Google Translate has really come a long ways, and it has, um, but it doesn't <laughs> translate for like um, like for the you know, when you're, when you're, when you're dealing with an adult patient, you don't want to tutear, like you want to use usted, you know, uh, which is like the more formal way of addressing. And many times these translators will default to a less uh, informal language and it, in you know, it can be, it can lead to some um, uncomfortableness. Right. And then sometimes if you put too much into it, it's very, um, I guess it's very sensitive to punctuation. So you got to be really careful and the, and it's very, and it won't do like the, you know, the idioms and things like that. So you have to keep your language very simple. You know, you type it in and it can help in a crunch, but there's really no, um, the interpreter, the life interpreter is really the way to go when you can. And if there's, you're in a crunch, you can use maybe the, you know, the, the, the app, but I wouldn't rely on that because we're just not at Star Trek right now. We're not at the place where we have these international, I wish, you know, I'm a big sci-fi fan. We're just not there yet. And we just need to be conscious of what we're saying and make sure that we don't rely on the interpreter to fix what we're saying, 
They're going to say exactly what we're going to say. So we have to be, you know, be really careful about the words that we choose and make sure that we have someone who is um, truly a professional interpreter and not just someone who's walking by mm-hmm. who may or may not be, you know, fluent. I had to put and that. That's what I, I, to put I like to. I like to take some time. Um, usually, what I do is I will call the interpreter. I usually use my phone um, and call the interpreter because half the time my patients struggle to hear and I can't hear the iPad. And so I just put it on my phone and hold it right up to their ears so they can hear. And I usually like to call the interpreter outside of the patient's room um, and kind of prep them and tell them, you know, I'm about to um, assess a patient who has dementia. Um, If they don't understand, please don't repeat. Wait until you hear me repeat it. Or if they're not understanding you, tell me, don't just keep, you know, cueing them. Um, Cause I'll notice sometimes like, for example, I was working with a woman who, who was a Haitian Creole speaker and the interpreter, like they kept going back and forth. And I kept having to say to the interpreter, what are you telling her? What are you telling her? Like to make sure that I understood. Um, so I think just preparing them because like they said, you know, um, interpreters are not speech language pathologists. So you have to make sure that you prepare them um, for what you're going to do. And then another thing that um, I often see is I will have people who will say, well, you know, sometimes um, I'll have a patient who like, I feel like they need an interpreter, but then I go in the room and they're like declining. They don't want to use an interpreter. And so that's another reason why I just have the interpreter on the phone and walk into the room with the interpreter. And then they could still, you know, patients have the right to refuse. So if they, you know, Mm want to say like, no, it's okay. But what I I've often realized is that a lot of times people feel like they're inconveniencing the healthcare worker to go get the interpreter. And so I'll just have the interpreter on the phone, like an an example today. So today I had um, family education done for a patient who is bilingual and Vietnamese and English. He actually speaks English better, but his wife, um, when I was going to get him, the nurse was telling him that she was telling her that she was giving him a medication for spasms. And she was like, spasms? Like, I don't know what that is. And so I told her, um, I was like, well, why don't, would you like me to get the interpreter for your comfort in case there's something that I say that you don't understand just so you can have it? And at first she was like, no, no, it's okay. I could look it up on Google Translate. And I was like, it's fine. I was like, I'll have the interpreter. And so we called the interpreter and I said, interpreter, I'm just letting you know, I'm doing some family education. I have a woman who's with me who's bilingual and Vietnamese and English, but every once in a while she doesn't understand and I might need you to jump in and interpret. So I'll let you know. And so that was probably his easiest session of the day because he literally just sat there on the phone for 30 minutes and she ended up saying, you know, well, you're, I can understand you much better than the physical and the occupational therapist, which that often happens because we know how to break things down in a way that's Mm -hmm. easier for people to understand. But because I automatically gave her that option. I didn't put her in a position to make her feel like, oh, like I'm causing an inconvenience. And then she had that resource accessible to her so that she could make sure that she fully understood what care her husband needs. I think that's part of cultural humility mm-hmm. to, to put yourself there and in the other person's place and just try to understand the situation. And, and people say, well, you know, if you speak this language, why aren't you just, you know, if you speak English, like I, when I go to the stores and I see people, I hear people speaking Spanish and, you know, they might speak English. I just jump in there and speak Spanish. You know, I mean, so it's part of who you are and knowing that somebody else may not be able to understand is something that we have experienced and that, you know, especially like me and, and can, uh, you know, it's really nice to have somebody watch your back. Right. And that's exactly what you did. You know, my parents, my mom sounds pretty fluent, but when they're talking about medical terms and medication and all that you know, sometimes they might not be able to understand exactly there's there's something some, because of vocabulary or, and it's just nice to have that interpreter. So she always, even though she speaks and writes and reads fluently in English, she always has an interpreter for a backup, you know, and, and I think that that it has been helpful. So I'm so glad that you had that experience today because that's beautiful. That's exactly what we need to consider. Um, don't just take yeah. their word you know, for it, because they're trying, again, we don't want to, no queremos, you know, molestar, you know, we don't want to be a bother to you. And they're not used to the fact that this is part of your care and it's, it's okay. 
you know. So. Right. So earlier Renee had mentioned that like gave the example of like an English speaker who maybe is conversational in Spanish and is, you know, on vacation in a Spanish speaking country and ends up having an emergency situation. Like even me, like I am bilingual and treat in Spanish. And if I were to have a medical event for my own comfort, if I were in a Spanish speaking country, like I would still want an English interpreter because sometimes it just with the anxiety and the you're when you're in a medical situation, like you're in fight or flight mode, you know, like it's harder for you to process information in your second language. And then if you add on to that a communication disorder, it just makes it easier, even if the person is is bilingual. And then another point, I know we're kind of like jumping all over the place here too. Um, That's fine. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) One other thing that I see frequently that happens with our monolingual SLPs or even bilingual, well, bilingual SLPs who are not heritage speakers. um, One thing that I will see is they will come into the patient's room to a bilingual patient's room and say, um, do you feel comfortable if I do this assessment in English? And then they'll document the patient um, declined an interpreter. And, and especially when you are doing an assessment, you don't like, I like, illegal. I mean, I know <laughs> earlier that I said that the patients have a right to refuse, but if it's a stroke or a TV, I'll be like, mira, because I need to be able to see what you can do in each language. And like, I will kind of, if they're like declining or um, yeah, if they're declining and an interpreter, I'm going to, you know, give more education. Well, here's what can happen with a bilingual brain. You might have one language where your language skills are intact and you could have another language and your language skills are completely wiped out. So Yep. Yes. Yep. And so we'll, you know, if you see, si, si tu prefieres hablarme en, espo, en, en inglés, está bien, pero for this assessment, like I've got to do it in both languages. And then just, we could do our treatment in English if that's what your preference is. So it just made me think as you were t- talking um, that sometimes we have people who are not heritage speakers who learn English as a sec- as Spanish as a second language or another language, which I think is amazing, by the way. I mean, I had to learn English, but somebody that goes out and just learns another language like you, Renee, I mean, I just I have all, uh, you know, all kinds of kudos for you, but use what you know. I mean, if I'm, you know, in, I don't know, in a trauma situation, you know, you think about that heritage language, you think about what that means to you and the comfort that it brings to you. You know, um, you know, my, we talk about love language. My love language is Spanish. It's the first language where I heard, you know, caricias and, you know, cariños and, you know, that, that love language. My, the first time I heard somebody tell me I love you or maybe not, because in our language, you don't say it as freely as you do in English like that. But <laughs> I mean, when you, all the comforting words and things like that, they were in Spanish for me. You know, you know, if I'm sick and I can just think of when I'm not feeling well, you know, my mom, how she used to calm me down. And that's that, you know, basic, that's your, your heart language. Right. And so, and I always talk about like in the pediatrics, you know, talk to the children in the language that they, you know, they use at home because that'll be their comfort language. Um, and it could be the same thing um, for, for adults. You know, we have, we, we were going to talk about, and I don't know if we have enough time, but about, you know, the preparation, right, of, of SLPs um, in, in the master's programs or in, in mm-hmm. the master's programs, you know, bilingual SLPs. And I don't know how it was for you, Jackie, but, you know, I'm, I'm old. So I went to school in the, um, the 80s, the late 80s, right? And so for me, no one cared I was bilingual. Like it was not addressed. It was not brought up. It was not, it just didn't happen. So everything I've learned, I've had to learn since that time. I had absolutely no instruction in, um, in, you know, anything that had to do with culture or back. All I knew was me and my family and, you know, my surroundings and didn't make that connection with speech therapy at all. And so I just want to say that now there are a lot more programs that are offering, you know, bilingual credentials and even more that are offering more like, um, I don't like the cultural competence thing because, you know, I mean, just the whole term, it's you're on a you're on a path for competence, right? But they're offering courses in um in multiculturalism and and just helping you to learn how to evaluate and treat patients who speak other languages. Because frankly, and Jackie, I don't know if you speak other languages, but I only speak two. That means if I get a Vietnamese patient like you had or somebody from Russia, I might as well be a monolingual SLP. Only I have the knowledge of bilingualism and the knowledge of how culture and language interact, et cetera. But they're just 
probably not enough programs out there that are providing this kind of, uh, you know, of instruction. And part of it is because when you get into higher ed, um, there just aren't very many, you know, bilingual, um, you know, people of color, you know, multicultural individuals. Um, they just aren't, you know, back in the day, in order to get a PhD, you had to show um, uh, competence in another language. And slowly but surely, the other language became statistics. But anyway, that's a, that's a different issue altogether. But what can we do at at a to prepare? What would you What would you have liked to have had, Jackie? You know, as you were going through school, to help you prepare to be a bilingual, um, multicultural SLP. Oh my gosh! So my experience was um, kind of similar to yours. I will say that my um, program director. So what I did was like everybody in my program knew that I was interested in working with bilingual patients and I definitely like advocated for myself. And so my program director did a good job of like placing me in areas that had large Spanish speaking populations, but I still like you, you know, I, I, every time we had a research assignment, like I chose to write about monoling or about bilingualism. Um, and I, I never had a supervisor that spoke Spanish. So I was really like on my own. And then this podcast episode is called, we talk about imposter syndrome, but it created a ton of imposter syndrome for me because I felt like I like, should I even be doing this? Do I really have the language skills? And then, you know, to be honest, like at that point in time, ASHA has done a better job of restructuring the standards for bilingualism. But, you know, it was all the standards were like native or near native proficiency. And and it, it kind of goes back to what we said earlier about how that's just not the reality for many of us, that for many of us, native proficiency is translanguaging. It's not, we don't have the skills, like the professional language in both languages. And so I think, um, you know, even if you're a professor who doesn't speak another language and you have a student who speaks a different language than you and you know that that's what their interest is, like encouraging them to do what I do. So like if you're assigning um, some sort of research paper, assign them a topic about the population that they want to learn. Give them assignments where they have to, you know, memorize, um, you know, phonetic features of Spanish influenced English or phonetic features of different dialects or whatever dialect of Spanish they speak, have them do a report on that. Um, Just ways to like incorporate their interests. Like there doesn't, I mean, obviously the gold standard, the most ideal option would be to start a bilingual program, but we know that we just don't have enough bilingual SLPs to even who are professors to even do that right now. So, um, but there are ways that you can encourage um, and help to grow those skills, um, connecting them with other bilingual speakers, which I'm going to go ahead and put a plug in here. I'm a um, lead mentor for the bilingual empowerment through allied mentorship program. Um, I don't know if you're a member, Faye, but we'll be talking about this afterwards because we need you in this program. (laughs) Um, So we're, we've turned it into a 501c we're an online mentoring program. We um, are all bilingual SLPs who are looking to bridge the gap um, because just like what you mentioned, many of us don't have that formal training in grad school. And we mentor undergrad um, students, graduate students, and um, CFs. And so... Love it. Um, Yeah. So just that has really like improved my confidence and being able to like talk with other native Spanish speakers and hearing that like they're having the same issues that I have. Because so many times I would attribute it to like, oh, I'm not a native Spanish speaker or even like how you said earlier, how without within our own communities, how there's so much like like, stigma towards non-native speakers and just feeling like, okay, I'm not enough. Like I don't really deserve to be here. Like, I don't deserve to say that I'm really a bilingual SLP. But then when I got around this community of other bilingual SLPs, I was like, oh, no, like, this is a common experience what I'm going through. We need to normalize Um, it for sure. Yep. Yes. Yes. So even helping your students to have a community, to have one other bilingual SLP that they can go to when they have these situations and they're not really sure, is it me or is it? the system. So those would be my suggestions. I I think that programs can all have a bilingual evaluation team. I mean, 
when when I when it's Spanish, obviously it's like I'm in my element, right? Uh, but if it's another language, you know, we recently had somebody who was, you know, who spoke, um, you know, who's from Thailand and they had English and they also had Spanish influence. Um, we often evaluate people from uh, different Native American um, indigenous uh, re- reservations and, and such. And so we all need to, none of us own that, you know, just because I speak Spanish doesn't mean that, you know, I can address and evaluate every Spanish speaker in the region. That's just like a really big burden. You know, when you got your last name or you speak Spanish and everybody just looks at you and they just dump on you because you are bilingual and you're supposed to know everything. And like you said, you know, until very recently, there wasn't even, I mean, a lot of programs don't even have classes on this. So we're just kind of, we're just like you, you know? And so uh, if every program had one and they can use evidence-based practices, they can use interpreters, there's lots of things that can be done. Um, but I do like the idea. I think it's perfect. My, so my my doctorate is in cultural linguistically diverse exceptionalities. And so all of my assignments were even though it's an EDD, speech-based bilingual stuff, you know, I mean, that's where I got a lot of my, my, um, my education from was pretty much just focusing all of my, the papers and the readings that I did in my dissertation, et cetera, on, you know, bilingualism. That's how I learned it because I certainly didn't learn it, you know, academically from, from my program. So each program has a responsibility and not just putting it off. Oh, here comes Faye. She's going to give us the once a semester lecture on, you know, on multicultural evaluations. I don't have the corner on that. I've had to study it because I have to do it. But everyone should, you know, kind of level up and knowing that with, you know, over 90% of, you know, of uh, SLPs out there who are monolingual, it's higher than that, but it's really, you know, we're never going to get to 50% or to, you know, whatever. We're just not. There's so many different languages, so many different dialects that it is uh, it is unreal to think that we're not going to, that we're going to have a bilingual SLP to cover everything. We're not. So that means that the rest of us have to level up and learn how to do these kinds of evaluations. And the, the university programs have to really address it because we live in a multicultural world. And so they have mm-hmm. to take that step. And and have you know outcomes. We want students to feel comfortable using interpreters. We want students to um, to understand the intricacies of second language learning. Um, you know, bilingualism, trilingualism, etc. Um, and it can't just be one lecture once a semester. It has to be embedded in all of Absolutely. the coursework that we present. That when we're talking about feeding and swallowing, for example, that we also talk about the cultural background about you know regarding that. Um, you know, um, and 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 just the and you can investigate that. You can Im- invite speakers and such. And of course, we can't know everything about every, but we have to make that step and do the best that we can with what we know, rather than sit back and let some other, um, you know, bilingual, culturally diverse person, you know, who may or may not be there, take it off your hands. It's not realistic. Um, there aren't enough of us and we're pretty busy <laughs> as it is <laughs> and trying to figure out what we can do uh, in our uh, in our professions. Yeah, absolutely. It's everybody's responsibility to treat bilingual people, not just the bilingual SLPs. Okay. This is yeah. a fun conversation. You guys are great. You just you had your own podcast episode just now, which is great. <laughs> Renee, where were you? <laughs> I mean, I was you know, nodding. This just I was shows you that and we, need, we need to talk about these things. I mean, Jackie Hoff, and I mean, now that you have this group that you're going to tell me all about, um, you know, you just we just need to have these conversations to just acknowledge that this is that what we're feeling is is real and it's okay, and that you know we just have so much to say and nobody to say it too. So um, this was really important for me a very therapeutic and then you know thank you <laughs> for providing the space yeah, yeah it was very important to me because i think it was a um i also i opening as a mostly monolingual english speaker because again some of the points you made about using translators to me i don't know what the, the, the validity is for the translator to come in and translate something medically complex when i'm working you know when i was working in acute care you mentioned modified barriums i've had to use interpreters a lot of times in modified barriums and i have no idea what they're talking about and then sometimes the patient would get it get the barium in their mouth and they're telling them to swallow 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 well i didn't tell you to tell them that we don't we want to see the naturalistic setting so i think that kind of plays in there on um on all aspects because you mentioned language you mentioned dysphagia and both of those things depending on your setting are things that we work in all the time but just in general wow this was just great um i don't see any questions in the chat box i did see early on there was someone who commented 
Maria idioms are a prime example. They just don't translate well. And I think, again, um, you touched on that a little bit and how that's not going to be something you can necessarily get a good translation of in Google Translate. But, you know, any kind of final thoughts? I, I appreciate you both so much and, and always learning from both of you. I do have a I have a, a Facebook group that I that I um, administrate. It's called uh, Bilingual and Multilingual Speech Language Pathology. And just recently I put on there, OK, five free you know consults for half an hour. And, you know, people are like so hungry for this information. I mean, these are bilingual SLPs or maybe monolingual, and they really want to figure out, you know, how to make it work. And I've met some interesting people from, you know, all over the country just in this month who just kind of want, and a lot of them know what they're, they just want like affirmation and support that what they're doing is correct. And some just like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And so then we guide them through, through a protocol and, and such. But there's such hunger and not only the hunger, but there's a true need for um, for this kind of, for, for understanding bilingualism. And there's no time for us to um, have the imposter syndrome. We just are who we are. And in, we are not going to be apologetic for not knowing all the Spanish words or not knowing all the English words or just not speaking the same dialect. We have no control over that. We are who we are. And just our, our love for the work that we do and our genuine care for our patients should just drive us, you know, and that should be enough, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I just want to add, if you're a bilingual SLP um, who's interested in being a mentor, where we always take volunteers, we're always looking for more mentors, and you can find us on Instagram. Our Instagram is the BEAM, B-E-A-M, SLP program. We would love to have you. I'm going there now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, gracias, Jackie, Faye. This was great. I'm so grateful to both of you for sharing in my vision and and entertaining me because I wanted to do the questions in Spanish, but I'm not that proficient. So (laughs) I think this was a great episode though. And so I appreciate you both being here tonight. Thank you. And we look forward to seeing you again. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.